Did you know you are influenced greatly by the environment you grew up in? You really were. You were influenced in a tremendous way by whatever environment you grew up in. And so one of the things that we've decided to do over this last number of weeks is really take a look at how do we then take those experiences and filter them through what God wants to do in our lives. So um, since our immediate families kind of impress upon us, um, whether we like it or not, um, of, of who we are going to be and, and shaping us, we also know that Christ comes in. He says, you are a new creation. Um, the old has gone, the new has come. But that's a continual process. It is something that's not easy. And so we took some things that we've learned, the emotionally healthy spirituality, like we need to take time to really get to know ourselves in order for us to know God on a deeper level. So we spent some time doing that the first week. We have to go back. We have to deal with things in our past in order to be able to move forward. We also talked about that each of us are going to hit a wall, this very difficult point in our life. Um, and if we don't make it through it, we really can't mature. So we go through this part of it, and we spend some time talking about that. This includes also how our suffering and loss enlarge our souls because it helps us to know in what way we depend upon God, how he wants to infuse his strength into those times. And last week, we spent a great deal of time talking about the necess necessity of developing a rhythm of rest and renewal. How we need to be able to just let go of some things and truly allow God to do this work. Step away from it and go, I can't continue to feel like I have control. So today, I want to take the next step that will help us grow into this emotionally um, and spiritually mature person who has more strength, more peace, more ability to love than they ever thought possible. So let me go back to the first statement. You are influenced by the environment you grew up in. It's true. Whether you like it or not, um, we in the Midwest might be able to relate with some of these famous sayings because this is part of what we're said by parents and mentors in our life. And so go ahead, feel free to finish these statements and let's see how, how much you actually were influenced. This one, if you don't have anything nice to say, okay, don't say anything at all. So obviously, um, that's an, a key one, right? Don't say anything that's not. How about this one? Um, and that is, don't forget to say. Thank you. Right, don't forget to say thank you. Anything else? Please, right? I mean, it's kind of like simple manners. It's amazing how these things influence us. Hey, make sure you say that. I just say please. Can you say thank you? It's, it's part of the environment. Okay, how about this one? I am going to count to three. I, I hear some people say ten. Wow, that's awesome. I didn't get ten. You got three. So, and I think three is kind of a universal thing. It's kind of like, oh, I'm coming to three. At the end of three, you better be, you know. And parents, I'm sure that kids think, yeah, I'm sure it's more than that. I think I've heard that over and over. So if they've heard it over and over, why don't they do it? Seriously. If it, and that's why parents say it. Don't, can't you realize? And so part of that frustration. Oh, here's a really good one. Do as I say. Oh, that's a really good one. Keep in your back pocket. I never understood that one until even today. It's kind of like, I don't think you should be throwing that one around anymore. That one, I just don't think that one's going to fly in the long run. I don't think it's going to produce what you want it to do. And here's a, here's a great one. When I was your age, 
oh man, that was a common theme. You know, when I was your age, we used to have to study for 17 hours a day, and then we'd got, it's just all of these enormous things, or I had to walk, or I had to, you know, whatever it might be. We, We say these things. In fact, I remember when I came to my grandmother's house and uh, we were hanging out as a young child. My mom remembers this really well. And I looked at the grandma and said, Grandma, how was it playing with the dinosaurs? <laughs> and, uh, and, and she looked at me and said, what is, what's the matter with the kid? Oh, I don't know. I don't want to say that grandma's not that old. She looks that old. So, you know, I mean, as a kid, you're just, you know, you're just caught into this. I think it's amazing how many of us remember these sayings. We, we, we grow up with certain messages that our parents have worked hard for us to remember. Adults do not expect that young children just know what to do. There is a process for them to, to learn. And effective parents understand the training, the encouraging, the confronting, the walking alongside, um, the hugs, all those things so that their child knows what it means to grow up to mature in the midst of that. A parent understands that a huge part of their role is to influence their children toward the values that they hold most dear. It's, it's what they do. When Jesus calls us in a relationship with him, he says, you need to accept me as a child. In Matthew 18, he called the child to him, placed the child among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you become change." And become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Unless you change and become fascinating. It's a beautiful picture of a child who depends and trusts on the one who loves them and shows them the way. Here's the problem with just taking that and saying that's the stopping point. That's the highest point you can get. And that is that many believers never move beyond that. Jesus does want us to accept our position of dependence on him like a child. That's that faith. But he wants us to learn from him and also to mature mentally, emotionally, spiritually in our walk with him. Paul was super frustrated in this whole area as he wrote to the churches that he was helping along the way. He said to the church at Corinth, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. You're still caught up in this, even though I've been trying to train you. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not not solid food. And anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, about the values, about how life is that I designed them to live. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You see, there's something that takes place in our life. Here's the myth number one. Not a lot of people just think. Because I'm a follower of Jesus, a Christian, growing into an emotionally, spiritually mature adult is just natural. It just happens. It just comes about. It's just just there. 
That's a myth. That's not the way. That's why solid food is for the mature, the constant use. Like any kind of athlete knows that if they said, hey, I'm trying for this race, race which I'm doing in a few weeks um, on, um, on St. Patrick's Day, I'm doing a race up in the um, Twin Cities called the Get Lucky. Um, I, I didn't name the race. Just don't even go there. So, um, but I like that they, you know, gave us a shirt that says get lucky right on it. But, but the idea is that all the way along, I've got a training regimen that I'm following so that I might get lucky and finish the race, right? I, I want to be able to get done with that. In fact, they gave us these jerseys that on the back says finisher. Well, how do they know? I mean, I could just put that in my closet and say, take a look. See what it says? It says finisher on it. Never ran the race, just got the t-shirt. No, you see, there, there's training that goes on. It's something very important that takes place. When I was first married, I thought I really understood what it meant to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I felt that I knew Mary pretty well, but within just a few weeks, the harsh reality set in that I understood very little about her. Like the time I went to the grocery store, and uh, you probably got this in your email if you looked at them. I was shopping in the manner that I was used to, which means you go and you peruse what's there and you compare and you contrast and you just enjoy the whole experience of walking down the aisles and looking at all the different options that there are. Mary, on the other hand, had a list and a timetable that set about of getting the items as quickly as possible. She gave me a few of them on the list so that we could get done a lot sooner because we needed to, I decided to try and lighten the weight of her anxiety in a way that I thought would be very helpful. So I'm coming down the aisle, I'm kind of juggling, hey, I got these things, look at this, Woo! you know, toss them in there, hey, toss in the basket. And, and so I'm thinking this is really helping her to kind of lighten her up. She turns to me and says, will you just grow up? Sorry, I, I thought I was grown up. And on she goes, oh, here's the list. We got to get going. Your parents are coming. We got this whole big thing. We only got so much time. Let's... Oh, yeah, there, that, that's right. We, we, we do have to get going. In her defense, I was the one who volunteered to help her accomplish the task more quickly. And I was holding up the process. I had a choice to make at that moment. One, I could still hold to my way of shopping and just think, you don't understand. This is supposed to be a fun thing to be able to do. This is the way I've always done it. And to continue to frustrate her. Or I could be willing to enter into her way and enter into what she wanted to accomplish in a timely manner because this was an important family event. This microcosm of an event, though, I have to say, um, showed the differences in our relationship that I wrestled with for years. And we still have some things. But change was going to be necessary in order for us to experience the joy of the marriage relationship. You had to change. It was necessary. Change and become. That's why the first myth is that it's not natural. Myth number two is followers of Jesus can show greater love to those around them better than anyone else can. Oh, we're, we, we understand agape love. That's what Christians are all about. Did you know that the divorce rate, deficient parenting issues, sexual immorality, greed, conflict, unresolved anger um, for Christians is just about the same as it is for those who are not followers of Jesus. 
Not really a lot of difference there. Our quality of love in general is not much better, even though we claim to know the God of compassion who created love and is love incarnate. So my question is this, why? Why is it that our connection with him is not producing the kind of change that makes us more like him? Why is that? Why is it that our connection with him is not producing the kind of change that makes us more like him? Why is that? Let me read this little text out of Luke 10. It's in your bulletin there. It's a familiar story. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Jesus often came back with a question. He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. End of story. Beautiful, right? Yeah. Being an emotionally spiritually mature adult is summed up in this way. The ability to love well. Simply that. The ability to love well. In the way that God designs it. The crisis is that most believers have not learned to practically and effectively allow God to shape them by applying the truths of the Bible and especially as it comes to what it means to really love others. For instance, be quick to hear, slow to speak, speak the truth in love, be angry but don't let the sun go down on your anger. Um, a lot of other things about change are missing for long-term followers of Jesus. We live in a day and age where many followers of Jesus don't actually want to change their lives. They just want Jesus to come in and make their life better under their terms. And yet that's not the way Jesus sees it at all. In fact, one um, person who has been a tremendous influence in my life growing up was um, Jungbun Kim. He is the well-known Christian leader from Korea. And a number of years ago, as I started to read his story and started to follow him and listen to some of his messages, he really inspired me because he, he caught a glimpse of what God wanted to do. He witnessed his wife and his father as they were slaughtered before his eyes by the communist sympathizers from his own village, people that he knew. He himself was beaten senseless. They left him for dead, thought he wasn't going to make it. He survived the, the beating, and he began to read what God had to say in his word, and he started to ask God, Lord, give me a love for my enemies, because it says that this is what you called us to do. He eventually led 30 of those um, people who, who beat him and who were part of that, who were against him, to believe in Jesus, including the person who was responsible for his death of his family members. What ended up happening, he started to influence hundreds, and then thousands, and then hundreds of thousands of people, and basically helped them to know, this is what it means to give your life for Jesus and to live for him. And because of this one person's impact, Korea sends more missionaries around the world than any other country but the U.S. 
They are the people who go out and say, the world needs Jesus. We need to send people out. And the Korean church is an amazing place. The greatest moment of change came from him when he learned that scriptures um, had said, I can empower you and change you so that you can love even your enemies, those who have wounded you deeply. He saw that Jesus offered his life, and so he was able to enter in to having his life shaped by him. Our vision at New Day is this. New Day reaches out to children, youth, adults, and families so they can experience what? The life-changing difference that comes from knowing and following Jesus. It comes from knowing and following. The person asking Jesus the question is a lawyer. He's an expert in the law. A person who grew up knowing, but most likely struggled with following that particular process. This comes through what he asks next. Hey, um, that's all good, but Jesus, who, who is my neighbor? Really, who is my neighbor? It kind of proves he doesn't get what God wants most from him. In fact, he, he really only asked that question to justify himself. Because again, he ends up there testing and going, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Really, seriously, how can, you, how can you know? And so Jesus continues on with that story. Um, and he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and he went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side too. Wow. Priest and a Levite. Two people who knew Scripture better than anyone else. They knew it. They understood what it meant. Whole life is to love, serve God. They see this person, they do what? Nothing. They, they walk away. They had a lot of other things. They didn't investigate. They didn't go in to try to help. They just walked by. They were disconnected from what it means to really enter into what God called them. Funny, maybe they had stuff that was going on in their life. They just needed, we got, we got, we got a plan. We got to work this plan. I don't know who said it, but it said, busyness is the greatest enemy of spirituality. When we so fill our life up that we can't have room for God to work, you will never grow mature. Most important, their hearts were not soft or chains. They could not allow the compassion to flow. They were all about the task of, of, of religious you know, workings, but they weren't about the life change that God brings. And then here's what happens. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And he saw him. And he took pity on him. His heart was moved to compassion. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them the innkeeper, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. The key word on there, he sees and he takes pity. He puts into action. He can't help himself. The shock of the story is the Samaritan, because if this particular religious leader who asked the questions listening, he's going, whoa, whoa, Samaritan? Jesus, what are you thinking? Um, they have a inter different interpretation of scripture, you realize. They're not really following. In fact, to the Jews, 
Samaritans were all going to hell. They were, they were already destined. They were so wrong that they, no reason, we just discount them. They were second class, inferior. They hated each other. Two races, two different religious perspectives, two different ways of doing things. In fact, it says that he who eats the bread of Samaritans is like the one who eats the flesh of pigs. I mean, it was the idea of it is, it is distasteful. In fact, it's unpure. So don't even hang around them. So think of a person right now in your mind who you think is definitely not right with God. This person is messed up. This person I disagree with. This person is totally off base. Maybe it's a different religion, different political view, grew up elsewhere, one not like you. How does it make you feel? Does it bring you to the point of compassion towards them? Or does it alienate you from them? It's a pretty big thing. Compassion is so intense that you can't help but do something when you see this person in crisis. You feel for them. Takes them in, gives them medical care, spends money, two weeks. And then Jesus asked the question after he told the story. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, you got it. Now go and do likewise. Live that out. Make that part of your life. Do you see what's taking place here? Christ ends with the emphasis on doing. Do constantly. Live this out in the everyday action of your life. Now realize this story is really about you. On the side of the road. Beat up. Wounded deeply. Feeling like you can't go on. Wondering if anybody will come to rescue. This is what Jesus is looking and saying. Do you want to understand that that's you? You're the person who is the one who is hurting. You are the one that's laying there naked, shamed, dying. Jesus saw us and he said, I have compassion on these people who don't even yet know me. He left his position in heaven. He was stripped, whipped, killed, attacked. And then it kind of says that the whole thing is he gave himself for us. Only if you experience that unbelievable sense of what Christ did for us can we truly be a neighbor, where we are humbled by the sense of, God, look what you did. Look what you did for me. It, it breaks down the barriers. And so when we look at others, we have that same kind of compassion because we've been walking with Jesus. We, we see this. We see the brokenness around us. This good Samaritan, who they thought was off heart, he loves maturely. Now, he understood the importance of limits and boundaries because you notice he didn't say, come home with me, I'm going to take care of you the rest of my life. No, he, he understood he doesn't bring the victim back to his home nor obligate himself financially for the rest of his life. He does not try to be everything. He, he, he helps in the way that he can at that point and then he has to move on with his journey. There's a balance in there. So let me conclude with this. Your initial ability to love well is connected with how emotionally secure you are in the environment you grew up in. If you did not feel emotionally secure, if you didn't feel safe in the environment you grew up in, then that's all you know. You, you struggle with, how do I move beyond this? You, you, you're, you're, you were impacted so much that when Jesus says, I want you to change and become, I'm going to have to help you get there. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on that area. If you experience comfort from your parents, or if it was absent, your feelings of where you're at are often connected into how you felt when you were growing up. Were you taught to express and identify what was going on inside you? Were you free to be able to live in that? Did, did, did your parents help you to process through that? Or was it kind of like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. I, I, I didn't understand. And so we all carry some invisible barriers to love well. Our lessons in loving well, emotional maturity start as children. And then it goes all the way through as we process through. So... Most of my daughters, by the way, when I was younger, asked me, hey, Dad, can we be pen pals? We want to write notes to one another. For some reason, that was a big thing at school. So, um, so they would write these um, letters, and we would do letters back and forth. And I have dozens of notes and letters from um, both Rachel and Amanda. And, uh, and so Rachel wrote me notes. Here's, here's one of them. Uh, I put it up on the screen there for you. This is, um, she loved anything with animals, so I was always getting these little notes with animals on them. But she goes, Dad, you did a good job on this sermon today. I could understand it very well. And then she says, could we go out to breakfast or lunch sometime? I love you and thank you for loving me, Rachel. That was awesome. I, I, of course, I kept it years ago, but it meant so much to me. So we did go out. We went out and we, we had lunch and, and, um, and, and we, we tried to do that once in a while. I said, hey, Rachel, you know that? Thank you for the note. And, hey, what, you know, was there something on your mind? He goes, yeah, Dad. When you were talking, I realized that, um, you know, you work a lot. And sometimes I just don't know if you want to spend time with me. Well, tell me more about that. Well, you know, you've always got other people that you're caring for, and I just didn't know if I was as important as them. So I just thought it'd be fun for you and I to go have some lunch together. You know, it was a very painful process, and I, I've looked through lots of these letters, and it was a common theme in the girls' letters. Hey, Dad, we'd like to have time with you. Hey, Dad, can we have more time with you? Hey, Dad, uh, with my workaholic family pattern, Sometimes it didn't take as much time as I could have. So we talked about that. We even talked about it today. And they wrestled with some of the same things. My youngest daughter even said, Dad, um, you know what? My biggest struggle is I don't really take time for my friends because there's other things to get done. Uh, hmm. I wonder where you learned that from. See, we all grow up with certain patterns in our life. And... To really enter in and to love well means that we're willing to be honest about the changes that need to be made, take place. So I want to encourage you that we want to see that change. The honesty of coming in this whole process is that you want to enter into what God has. He is the one who does the work. Paul said this, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Do you know where that's from? It's from 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest of all love chapters, it says. It talks about moving from a self-centered to a Christ-centered life that overflows into others-centered. This kind of love is patient, kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not... It's not 
the things that normally happen in the world. It's a transformation. It's an amazing thing. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It rejoices with truth. It's, it's a beautiful chapter. So here's my challenge to you. Here it is. Here's the application. Go home and read 1 Corinthians 13. Just go home. And uh, when you're there this week, as you're doing your other process, just start reading through it. And then ask one simple question. How are those things becoming evident in my life? How is God making those things reality? How is he doing that? Where can I tangibly point out where that's taking place? I love that I get to watch many of you on Wednesday night who help out with Awana. I watch the way you serve kids. I was walking around last Wednesday and you're down on your knees, you're talking to them, you're, you're invested. For many of you, you're here helping out on a variety of different capacities, whether you're on a team or helping out with setup, whatever it might be, but that's just here. When we look outside the walls, there's things people don't even know that you're serving. Thank you for being the people who do that. But it's important for us to say, God, continue to break through that barrier. I want to be that kind of loving person. I want you to produce that in me, which I can't produce in myself. So, Mike Iaconale wrote a great little book. I, uh, I, I enjoy it um, a great deal. and It's called Dangerous Wonder. And he said this, Our world is longing to see people whose God is big and holy and frightening and gentle and tender. A God whose love frightens us into his strong and powerful arms where he longs to whisper those terrifying words, I love you. The power of the church is not a parade of flawless people, but of a flawless Christ who embraces our flaws. The church is not made up of whole people, rather of the broken people who find wholeness in Christ who was broken for us. And in the midst of that, he changes us into more and more of his image. This, my people, is why we come. Today we're going to celebrate again what the Lord did for us. So I invite you into a time of just letting your hearts be open before him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are present here with us, that you love us with an everlasting love, that you can change us and we can become more and more like you and find the beauty of the freedom and the peace and the healing and the change that comes from putting ourselves into your hands and molding the shape. So today, we give our lives over to you because you gave your life for us. Hear us, O oh Lord, as we seek you in your name.